There's got to be an explanation to all these UFO sightings, right? Hey, it's Stephen Diener, host of the Unidentified Alien Podcast. And whether you're new to the conversation or have been looking into it for years, you need to check out the fastest growing alien show out there, the Unidentified Alien Podcast, or UAP for short. There's a crazy amount of alien encounter stories out there from all over the world. And the beauty of it is that I bring them all to you and let you decide what you believe. Download and subscribe to UAP on any of the major podcasting platforms. And you can also find it on UAPpodcast.com. This is a WTOP original podcast. Coming up in this episode of Target USA. One story with two interviews today, and it's all about the war in Ukraine. The saying that it is Putin's war and it is not the Russian's war, I do not think that it is really valid. That's Eva Ekpayuste. She's the director of the Lenart Mary Security Conference. It's that time of year again, and they're looking at some very difficult issues. The war has actually opened the old wounds. Our second interview? Ukraine's President Volodymyr Zelensky's got a serious concern. Politically, for him, it's very difficult because anything less than driving Russians out will be politically dangerous for him. Stephen Erlanger is based in Brussels. He's the New York Times chief diplomatic correspondent. There's just nervousness, particularly in political Europe as the war goes on. Coming up on this episode of Target USA. The National Security Podcast. From WTOP in Washington, D.C., this is Target USA. Russia could render huge harm to this country. North Korea's secret missile. Capable of reaching the whole of the United States. Dangerous terrorist. D.C. is repeatedly mentioned as someplace they would like to seek an attack. Cyber criminals. Decryption successful. America has a target on its back. And on this program, we investigate the threats, the people behind them, the agencies fighting them, and the impact on you. This is Target USA, the National Security Podcast. I'm J.J. Green. As I mentioned earlier, we've got one story, two interviews today. The first is with Eva Ekpayuste. She's the director of the Lenart Mary Security Conference in Estonia, which is taking place in Tallinn. Uh, it starts on the 12th of May and ends on May 14th. They're going to tackle some heavy issues. We'll talk with her first about the main issues they're dealing with. And number one on that list is Ukraine. You have been involved in planning this conference for a year, just like you do every year for these conferences. But this year, you had to make a big adjustment because of the war in Ukraine. So can you just give me a sense of what you think the most important topics are this year at the conference? Yes, indeed. As you, as you rightly said that uh, last year, it was, it was marked by war in Ukraine. And when I had the conference then in May, it was kind of carried by, by shock and, and by just by emotions because it was still like hard to grasp it. And this year, I uh, entitled the conference by by Dante, Incipit Vita Nova, what means so begins new life. And although Dante made it uh, when he really fell in love with, with gentle Beatrice, 
then my meaning was that uh, it is now second year of the war and we really need to not only to figure out but really to be active actively participant in what will be the outcome and what will be the new security architecture that will emerge from the ruins of the of the old one and it will be the spine of uh, of this conference especially as it will uh, take place two months before NATO summit in Vilnius. So it pretty much concentrates about it. And the second pillar actually is what also uh, comes very, very um, straightly also from war in Ukraine was that the big surprise for West or let's say collective West was that the perception that West has about the war in Ukraine is not necessarily what global south or the rest of the world would share. And um, and in this sense, it is very clear that we really need to have more dialogue and we need to have more and better understanding of each other. I mean, it, it is the war has actually opened the old wounds in, in global south, starting from uh, starting from colonial past. You know, starting from from um, inequality of sharing the global good, and and it is all on a table right now, and sometimes it is pretty tense and pretty bitter, and in this in this case, I think that Estonia, as a tiny bit of Europe, who does not have any colonial past is pretty good place where to to really to start the discussion about how to come closer to each other. You talked about how the nations, Europe, and of course, friendly Western nations need to come together. Have you seen any closeness? Have you seen that happening since the beginning of the war? I know before the war, people were kind of off on their own tracks and thinking and dealing with their own problems. And some of those problems would pit the neighbors against each other. But have they set those things aside? Have you seen evidence that they've set those things aside and are starting to focus on what really needs to be done to make sure that Ukraine stays free and then all of Europe? Because if if Ukraine loses, so does all of Europe, right? Yeah, it is, it 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 is true, and I but I also think that there are like two two different, uh, although colliding chapters, and one is one is Europe, and well, if we say wider Europe or Europe and European Union, and uh, what we can see on uh, on the level of public opinion, then uh, we can see and say that Europe is quite united. For instance, it is uh, the think tank ECFR has made recent polls, and it is really, uh, I would call it tectonic shift, what has happened, for instance, in public opinion of Germany. The public opinion of Germany toward Russia is now very similar to public opinion of, of, uh, of Poland. It's practically, practically the same. And even if Poland is still quite bitter on Germany and, and say that they move rather too slowly and that the Zeitenwende is kind of uh, not going on so rapidly as they would wish. I still think that actually this 
big uh, change in the way of thinking has taken place. And it is something that that really, really should be taken into account and what I really do think is important. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. and but but what I just wanted to say for, for another aspect is transatlantic relations. And, and it is as a part of relations in, in collective West. And it, it is indeed that it, it um, that, that nature is to some extent, it is more united than, than it has ever been. Although I think that it was Carl Bildt who, who said it that not for good reason, but nevertheless. And I think that it is in our in our hands how we we really can um, how we can handle it. But it is also that uh, we need to say that transatlantic relations and future of, of these relations depends pretty much on what is going to happen in in the U.S. inside politics. Well, that is the thing I wanted to ask you about. What is your sense about what you see from Europe's perspective? about what's happening in the U.S., because one of the things that's taking place here is there seems to be we're setting up for that same epic battle that took place a few years ago. Um, so what is Europe? What is Estonia? What is the conference? Leonard, Mary, how do you see what's happening here? Uh, we we hope for the best, we, let, let's say, and... and but we see with worry that the polarization inside uh, inside uh, American society is maybe deeper than it has been for for a really long time, and that the healing process that was much hoped for when when President uh, Biden took uh, took the presidency, it has not been so smooth as it was maybe hoped in the beginning. So. Uh, so it it means that for Europe, uh, this unpredictability rate in US is higher than it has been previously, yeah. and so it it is also it is one of the one of the panels in during the conference. What I really for myself, it is one of the of the key panels is discussing the. Um, uh, rising anti-American tendencies in both in West and and in global South, and and just to try to figure out that uh, that uh, how to estimate it. I personally estimate it very high security risk, and what what could and should be done about it. Yeah. For me, it is a big issue. Yeah, it is a very big issue here, much bigger than many people I think even realize. A lot of folks are focused on day-to-day things here, but this will become a very big issue here in the coming months. One more question about the 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 the, the Russia-Ukraine situation and then to some more about the conference before our time runs out. Um, you have seen what's taken place inside Russia as well as this war has progressed. Do you think there has been any change at all first in the general population's view of this war in Ukraine? And what about the leadership in Russia? Is it as strong as it was before, or were we just mistaken about that in the beginning? Yeah, it, it is quite a quite complicated question. And first, maybe if we speak some, some words about the society in Russia, 
It is, I, I'm very happy that we do have really, I, whom I estimate to be best experts in Russian society uh, coming who give uh, their views and ideas. But as much as I have uh, followed them and as much as I, I can read out because there's no possibility to go and have a look, um, the, the picture is rather gloomy. And it, it, it is, I mean, that the, um, the saying that it is not Putin, that it is Putin's war and it is not the Russian's war. I do not think that it is really valid that the society in Russia is very complicated, uh, structure, but it can be characterized by, by passiveness, by lack of compassion, by atomization, by lack of interest toward outer, outer world. And it is not a very good set, especially when we take into account that actually there has been a very significant um, flow or flow out of brains from, from Russian society. So it's, um, it is the, the picture is rather gloomy and it has been pretty much used uh, the, the argument that the problem is that uh, Russian society does not have um, access to true information. I rather doubt that it is it is true because nowadays it is practically everybody who really wants has has access to to uh, to to the information. But I rather think that it is kind of escapism and kind of uh, of uh, refusal. To actually to to see the true picture, and it is rather that that while the propaganda is so popular in Russia, the propa propaganda can be popular in Russia and in other places only then when it answers to some needs and 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 some kind of desires inside this nature. And I do think that at, at at this point, these two things collide. The propaganda says about the greatness of Russia, and it is exactly what Russians want to hear. Yeah. Ava, several years ago, when I first got involved with the conference, one of the big topics was China. And uh, you said then we needed to keep our eye on China. Well, a lot has happened since then, and certainly this war in 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 in, in Ukraine is, is, is a big thing. And you know, the situation that took place in the United States in 2021 with the uh, January 6th and so many other things in the global south and other parts of the world have taken place. How big of a role does China play in global security? And are you focusing on that at all during this conference? Absolutely, we do. And I, as as just some years ago, I, I do think that it is a crucial point on, on global security at all. I find it I find it extremely dangerous, actually, the tendency in Europe, what we have seen, for instance, recently, what, what Macron tried to say that, uh, that we, we should, we should handle uh, China like somehow differently. And, and that could be, could be different, the different perceptions of China in America and, and in, in Europe. I do think actually that uh, what is going on in Ukraine, that China is following it ever so closely. 
and and it gives them the key to how to to actually to to go on on global arena and we do have a, a direct impact on it on it i mean that it is if if china is getting more aggressive in in uh, in indo pacific region then it has direct impact on on the situation in europe and i think it's very short sighted to try to to draw there some kind of different lines that from this point we do not get interesting from this point we we may have our own view i find it pretty dangerous what are the other parts of the conference that you'd like us to focus on what other things are taking place yeah it is it is we we, we have talked about the 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 spine and the spine is that that we we need to to really actively participate in uh, in securing and building new new secu- security system and among and around it there are there are different parts and we do we do turn attention into different parts it is it is also we do have a very interesting discussion about uh, amina uh, about middle east we also we we are going to talk about sanctions and and discuss whether sanctions maybe we have put too much um on grounded hopes and and wait for much too much from them simply that maybe we should bit rethink the whole logic of of, of the sanctions mm-hmm. we we are we are going to to speak about the how the war, war in ukraine what i just was t- also touching before will uh, will go will touch the the global south and and how we can we can sort it out we also what we have is the uh, as 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 usually the the digital uh, digital part where it is also it is taking its uh, starting point from war in ukraine and the new new means of uh, warfare and we are also talking about silencing media because what i what i really think is that we we should talk about silencing media in non-democratic countries, but it is a it is quite a huge problem in democratic countries. For instance, the all the legalistic means, what is extremely extremely expensive, and what can simply buy money, you can really make uh, people uh, shut down, yeah. and uh, and so it is really three days and it's it's quite packed so i hope that everybody is finding something interesting for themselves absolutely and um one thing that i need to mention before we end is and if you don't want to discuss this it's okay i can edit this out but um you've been doing this conference for a while and it's my understanding that you are moving on and um, everybody who's participated in it is going to be very sad because you're moving on. But we know the conference is going to continue. But I just wonder if you have a few words you want to share about your time doing this conference and um, what it means to you. Yes, indeed. I I mean that um, for me, doing this conference has been a huge privilege. It's just... Um, I I have never taken it as a job. It it, it has more been like a lifestyle. Um, 
And it is also maybe the reason why why I do not continue for too long because as a lifestyle it, it can be quite exhausting. <laughs> but, yes. Absolutely. But but I I'm very much uh really convinced that it is it is the gathering what is what is really needed in this region. And I see us as still being on the crossroads of East and West. And I think that our unique situation already geographically gives us the, uh, the opportunity to offer better under- understanding for both parties. And it is also that uh, as a small state, we are very flexible. We can, we can sense the, the new topics and what is, what is there on the, on or what is rising and we can use it in conference like right away we we are small we we can move quickly and for me it is um, yeah it, it it is to to hold this Leonard Mary legacy that for me it has been enormous honor so I, I really I'm really thankful to to fate that uh, that I had this opportunity that was my interview with Eva Egpayuste, director of the Lennart Mary Security Conference in Tallinn, Estonia. Now to our second interview with Stephen Erlanger, chief diplomatic correspondent for the New York Times, based in Brussels. Stephen, uh, I've been following your writing and your work for a very long time, and it is great work. I mean, you, I believe, are based in Europe and you have, you're in the right place at the right time. One of the things you wrote about recently uh, was because of the war in Ukraine, NATO is trying to remake itself back to what it was in the Cold War. What exactly are you seeing? Well, you know, there's a lot if I could say, going on under the blanket, right? I mean, NATO is now 31 member states, including Finland. And the Russian invasion of Ukraine was more than a wake-up call. It was a shock. It was a psychological shock to the system. You know, even big NATO allies, um, you know, the UK and US kept saying Russia would invade. France and Germany didn't want to hear about it. And even the Americans and the British thought it would end up quickly, that Ukraine would lose quickly. So this has all been a surprise. And for NATO, which, you you know, always insisted that it had no particular enemy in mind, it was obviously arranged to keep the Soviet Union at bay, to keep it from getting more of Europe than it got in the treaties after World War II. And then when the Soviet Union fell apart, uh, when the Cold War ended, there was really a period of hope, um, misplaced perhaps, but certainly justifiable, that Russia could slowly be brought in to being more of a partner and less of an enemy or an antagonist. And so the Russian invasion of Ukraine has just thrown that right out the window. So NATO, once again, um, is trying to become that alliance that can protect its own citizens from Russian aggression um, and 
doing that by increasing its deterrence. Now, that means putting more troops on Russian borders, spending more money, et cetera, et cetera. We can go into it. But it's really a big change. So I think reading your piece, um, you mentioned that previously it was um, deterrence by retaliation. But this new focus is deterrence by denial. And you just mentioned a little bit about that, talking about more troops on Russia's borders. Based on your reporting, what else have you learned about the how they plan to build this out? I mean, just to, you know, fill out the explanation, it, when they thought Russia wasn't really much of a problem, right, um, they thought, well, they'll have deterrence. But um, they, if something happened, you know, American troops could get there eventually and could solve the problem. Even after 2014, when Russia annexed Crimea, which was something of a shock, NATO began to change and to spend more money. And it it started putting small battalion-sized groups in the four Baltic countries and Poland, right? So the three Baltic states and Poland, who felt most at risk. And they'd never really had, they didn't call them permanent stationing. They 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 were rotating because under a previous NATO-Russia agreement, when everybody thought Russia was not going to be as aggressive, there were limits, promises made of not putting NATO troops next to Russia. That's all out the window. So they've now since a year since the invasion, they've built four more battalion-sized forces south along the border. So now there are eight of them all along these so-called frontier states. Um, and But there are only about 10,000 troops total. So the idea is to build those out to larger forces um, basically brigade-sized forces, which are four to 5,000 troops in each country. Now, some will circulate, but the idea is to have many more troops, to have a much bigger kind of goat tethered to the stake um, and enough troops so that if Russia should try to invade the point would be to deter by ne- by denying Russia real territory, not waiting for the Americans. And one of the main reasons this has been happening is that the countries along the Russian border have seen what happened in Ukraine. They've seen what happened in Bucha, yeah. in Irpin, in Mariupol. They've seen the way Russian right. troops have behaved, and they do not want to have several months of Russian occupation themselves until the Americans and others can come to the rescue. That's the big difference. Yeah. Steve, do you see from what NATO is doing any reaction or at least what NATO is planning to do and what they've done so far? Do you see any response from Russia at this point? Or is Russia even in a position to respond based on the fact that it's in a war with Ukraine that it's in many ways losing? That's a that's a very right thing to say. Um, Russia has rhetorically responded, certainly to the new battalions 
in places like Romania, Slovakia, Bulgaria. They have responded angrily to Finland joining NATO, which it did very recently. It has argued that, you know, Sweden shouldn't join and that it will respond. Now, how will it respond? Now, it has, because, you know, Russia is still a nuclear power and it has submarines and it has a navy, it, it has lots of, 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 of capacities that are not being used in Ukraine. So people need to take it very seriously. But so far, um, their talk of building up troops along, let's say, the Finnish border, they don't have them. They're all in Ukraine. Um, so for for now, it's not really a problem. And, you know, even if they talk about, you know, extra nuclear missiles aimed at um, NATO, NATO's already covered by Russian nuclear missiles. I mean, even if they have more of them, it, it really makes very, very little strategic difference. Does Russia have any uh, plan? Do you see them actually planning to follow through on these many threats that we've seen from Medvedev and some from Putin and some from the military? to use tactical nuclear weapons. Do you get the sense that they are serious about that? Um, you know, it's very easy to be wrong because you can't get inside Putin's head, really. I mean, I thought we used to be able to, but not anymore. No, I don't think they're serious about using tactical nuclear weapons. Certainly, they don't want to get into a fight with with NATO itself, right? I mean, nor does NATO want to get into a fight with Russia, which is one of the reasons President Biden has been so careful not to get uh, American troops involved, why there's no no-fly zone over Ukraine. They don't want any chance of a NATO-Russian confrontation. Russians don't want that either. So no, I don't see that as as um, realistic. The only thing I talk to people who worry about this um, think that if Russia really is in danger of, of a collapse, if suddenly its troops flee, if Crimea is at risk, if particularly the Black Sea port of Sevastopol on Crimea is at risk, and that's a big thing for for the Russian Navy's control over the Black Sea, if it looks like Russia's collapsing, then perhaps Putin might use a tactical nuclear weapon. But this is there are no plans that I've heard of, and I don't think the Russians are serious about it. So one of the stated objectives of the Ukrainian Ministry of Defense and, and the government as a whole is to get all of Ukraine back to its pre-2014 borders. And that would include Crimea um, and, you know, other areas. So that is something that Ukraine's pushing for. So mm -hmm. is there is there a likelihood that Ukraine would see what you were just saying that there's a possibility Russia would use nuclear weapons if you did such and such, if you did X, that they would change their plans? Or are they in this and, and going to go forward based on what we've heard them say? 
It's very, it's really hard to know. I think for them to get that far, um, to be able to take back Crimea, uh, it's not going to happen soon if it happens at all. But look, I'm not on the ground there. Um, but the Russians have set up pretty strong defensive positions. Uh, the Ukrainians are planning this big counteroffensive for late this spring or, or, or even early summer. And I think we just have to wait to see the results of that offensive and hold off judgment to see where Russian lines end up, where Ukrainian lines end up. Now, certainly legally, internationally, Ukraine's sovereign borders include Crimea, and they include the Donbass. Even China, which is supporting Russia, sort of, recognizes Ukraine within its internationally recognized borders. But um, there are lots of conflicts that freeze. Look at Cyprus, look at South Korea, which has been frozen since 1950, whatever it is. Um, and the fear is that that might happen with Ukraine. Um, but hard to know. I mean, the Ukrainians are right to say we want all all our sovereign territory back. And, you know, the American position is we're going to try to help them, give them what, whatever they need. But I think uh, as I talk to some American officials privately, obviously there's a debate, they're very worried. Well, first of all, they're skeptical, which is some of what these leaks showed, that Ukraine will make huge progress even in this counteroffensive. They think the war will go on at least another year or more. Um, and there, there is a kind of quiet nervousness about ambitions to try to take Crimea. So nobody really knows, but uh, that's my sense of, of sort of where, where the current conversation is, put it that Steve, way. Finally, I'd like to ask you uh, from your perch there, what is it that's happening that we're not talking about or we don't see over here or just anywhere that isn't where you are and in basically the conversations that you're having with the people you're talking with and the reporting that you're doing, what is it that's happening that we should be aware of, we should know about and should be paying attention to? Well, there are a few things. I mean, one I'm sure you've, you've dealt with, which is just that a big part of the world, not just China and India, which are by themselves a big part of the world, regard this as a European problem, a regional problem, or have some secret sympathy with the idea that uh, a Western-led world order needs to adjust itself in a world where uh, Asia is getting more powerful, where Africa is getting more rich, where the balance of power just isn't the same as it was at the end of, of um, World War II. So that's the first thing. And the second thing I think is uh, less happy, which is that there's still a lot of work in Ukraine to do to make sure that uh, everything gets where it's supposed to be going, that there isn't corruption. Um, it's it's fighting bravely, God knows, but I don't see Russia giving up. 
Um, and so at some point, I think, as, as we all know, conflicts end either in stalemate or in negotiations or in total victory. I don't think the last one's going to happen. Um, but this confidence that Ukraine has, that Zelensky has, that the war will turn quickly, I think we need to be very careful about that. Um, and politically, for him, it's very difficult because anything less than driving Russians out will be politically dangerous for him. So there's those things. And the last thing I would say is there's just nervousness, particularly in political Europe as the war goes on, how long it will go on, how much it will end up costing, where it will end up what happens to prices, um, what happens to food prices. You know, there's a bit of a worry politically that the populist right wing will do well because of these anxieties and that more Europeans will see this kind of as an American-Russian war and less a war for their own security. Those are my concerns. Stephen, thank you very much. Stephen Erlanger is the chief diplomatic correspondent for The New York Times based in Brussels. That's it for this episode of Target USA. Coming up in our next episode, we got word on Tuesday, May 9th, that our friend and colleague Armand Soldin, who was a reporter for Agence France Presse, was killed in Bakhmut. We'll take a look back at the importance of his reporting from the war zone. It was a very misty morning, I remember. For Armand Soldin, a photographer for Agence France Press, it was a day he'll never forget. We went there actually when we heard the news that they found uh, more than 400 graves outside the cemetery in Izium. Nastia Stanko, a Ukrainian journalist, was there as well. In one grave, we found 17 bodies. And Soldin said this was not a place where people were laid to rest with dignity. Yesterday, by my eyes, um, I saw actually the exhumation of a former soldier. And he and others had been tortured. Hands tight in front, and he had his hands lowered. That's coming up on the next episode of Target USA. In the meantime, if you have any questions or comments about the program, send me an email. You can reach me at jgreen at wtop.com. The letter J, the color green, one word, at Whiskey Tango Oscar Papa, jgreen at wtop.com. Also, please subscribe to our podcast and follow us on Twitter. We're at TUSA Podcast. That's at Tango Uniform Sierra Alpha Podcast. And if you want more national security news, you can sign up for my newsletter. It's called Inside the Skiff, and you can sign up at wtop.com slash email. I'm J.J. Green, and this is Target USA. The National Security Podcast.